savings that you Welcome everyone and uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome Susan Ariel Aronson to the Berkman Klein Center. Uh, per our usual norms, I just want to remind everyone that this conversation is being webcast live and will be preserved. Um, and per our usual Berkman Klein norms, uh, and as Susan's already suggested, why don't we start by going around the table having everyone introduce themselves uh, and uh, then we'll uh, turn it over to Susan. Uh, Ron Newman, I'm local resident, not affiliated with Harvard, but very interested in all the issues that Berkman brings up. David Deese, I'm from Boston College at uh, Yale this year. Jeff Inglis, I'm a science and technology editor for The Conversation. I'm Patty Larson, I'm an LLM student at the law school. I'm Anna Gorg, I work for a reinsurance company, Swiss Re, and I just moved to Boston and I'm here mostly to listen and learn about this topic. My name is Nikki Barasa, and I'm a new project coordinator at the Berkman Center. And John's Berkman staff. Linda Aquilina, Boston resident. I'm Bernard Berlin, resident of Boston. Ah, you had to be different, huh? Yeah. I'm Caroline Troen, I'm a researcher up at the Fletcher School at Tufts. Edward Buchert, computer programmer and Berkman fan. <laughs> Rob? Rob Ferris, research director. Hi, Susan, welcome. Hi, Rob. Hi. I'm John. Um, be part of the assembly in January, and until then, I'm a consultant. And I, I'm Mark Wu. Uh, I'm an assistant professor here at the law school. And I uh, just want to remind anyone, uh, if you wish to tweet, uh, please use the hashtag uh, BKC. Um, also, uh, if you have any questions for Susan during the course of the presentation, uh, she welcomes interruptions. Uh, and any questions that you may have. So we're going to have this as a very informal conversation. Uh, and uh, last but not least, I uh, just wanted to spend a couple of minutes to introduce Susan. Um, she is the Research Professor of International Affairs and the uh, GW Cross Disciplinary Fellow uh, at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. In addition, she's also the Carvajal Fellow at the Government Accountability Project and was formerly the Minerva Chair at the National War College. Um, she's going to be talking to us today about her work on digital trade, but she's also involved in a number of other projects, including those concerning repression and civil conflict, uh, transparency as a tool to promote labor rights and good governance, um, trade liberalization and public health, uh, whistleblowers at international organizations uh, such as the UN WIPO, uh, she's been involved uh, or had her work funded uh, by a number of governments, major foundations, uh, international organizations such as the UN, ILO, World Bank, and 
and the like. Uh, and she's really one of uh, the leading voices in Washington and in the world on digital trade. So it's a real pleasure to welcome her here. So Susan, the floor Thank is yours. You. Thank you. So what I'm going to try to do today is talk about this weird relationship between digital trade, human rights online, and protectionism. And basically, it's a critique of US policy, although I think there are some things that are really good. So interrupt me at any time with this Prezi. Um, so I'm calling this the digital trade imbalance. And in truth, as I told some of you, um, trade imbalance is a term I've used before to describe US policies. But I think that it's we're in an odd position now in that I think many of us think of the United States as having the lead in terms of internet technologies. And hence, it seems odd that we would be so protectionist. And yet, the United States is the leading demandeur of digital protectionism. And more and more firms are asking for protectionism. And this very much worries me because it requires an expertise, and I'll talk about this, that I, I don't think the US government has. Um, often when the US government is hacked, we rely on foreign firms to attribute it. And so um, to start using protectionism as a tool very much worries me, because who's going to do the attribution? And is that going to increase trust in the government and the internet? Somehow I don't think so. But let's see what you guys think. So I'm defining digital trade as cross-border information flows, although the US government defines it as um, goods and services delivered via the internet. And the reason I define it this way is because um, digital goods are pretty easy to talk about and very clear, but so much of cross-border information flows have no monetary value. And many scholars question whether or not that's even really trade. But that's a different issue, and I'm not going to go there. But you guys can. <laughs> Um, so when I talk with digital rights activists like EFF, um, they're often very opposed to trade agreements. And they tend to focus on the intellectual property provisions, but they don't seem to see the possible benefits to internet governments and free flow of information. And so, um, the thing to think about is that the reason I believe trade rules could protect the open internet, and in general, I think it could be a good thing at the multinational level if they're done right, is because they will make it harder for governments to censor, filter, or block the internet. And the reason that'll be harder for them is it could be a violation of trade norms. So everyone with me on that? Okay. All right, so here's the latest figures that I have from the US government, and that's a source that I trust, is digital trade is about 385 billion exports. We have 12 of the 20 largest global firms. And at least four of the other firms are Chinese, and then there are other countries' firms. I often feel uncomfortable saying this, because do we really think of Google as a US firm? I mean, it certainly has a US character, but I realize I'm very hypocritical to call it a US firm. OK, but it's created a huge surplus for the United States. Susan, can I, can I yeah, pause yeah. you there? On the, what, yeah. What's in the $385 billion there? 
Is that so, purchases of ads on Google? What, what else that, is that's that? a lot there, but it's also digital goods that are delivered. For example, a digital good would be if you watched a movie on Amazon. Does that include, say, I buy something, I buy, you know, a bicycle on Amazon and have it delivered. That's not considered. Uh, well, the the transaction was digital trade, okay. right? But the actual trade yeah. was physical in a good. I don't know why I said physical. You could yeah. touch it, feel right. it. Yeah. It wasn't a service, but there was a service affiliated with that. Okay. Yeah. And oh, so uh, there was a statistics there, which I really believe, which is that seventy-five percent of the benefit accrued to traditional sectors of the U.S. and other economies, right? They've benefited from the efficiencies afforded by digital firms. Okay, so the U.S. Trade Representative claims that TPP, in fact, will help protect an open internet, and yet they provide very little evidence to make this clear. But I agree with them. It could help if TPP happens, which is a mighty big if, and also um, if uh, all the governments sign it, because all the signatory governments would comprise about 25% of the internet users at this moment, and that their numbers are going to grow for Asian countries. Okay, so trade agreements say very little about human rights, and they say nothing about the internet, because even though there's been plenty of trade agreements since the internet, um, has uh, been invented and became in wide use. Um, the TPP is the first trade agreement to make rules binding upon signatories, and that's really, really important. Because then governments must adhere to those rules as opposed to should, right? But they have something in common, which is the principle of non-discrimination, which is a human rights principle. So trade rules offer, in terms of non-discrimination, three types of non-discrimination. And the first type is most favored nation, which means that you treat every, every nation, goods and services from that country in, in an equivalent manner. National treatment, which is you don't favor your domestic firms over foreign firms. Okay, and then like product, which means that you are not supposed to discriminate against a product that's maybe made in an environmentally insensitive way or in a way that violates human rights. Okay? So you're supposed to treat all products, producers, uh, and countries the, in the same manner. And that, you know, sounds very human rights-y and I think comes out of a similar logic. Okay. So with that insight, why is the United States so adamant about these um, provisions, including them in TPP? Because all of this came out of U.S. pressure upon our trade partners, okay, who wanted much more stringent privacy regulations, and they didn't want these rules to be binding, but they agreed to it in TPP. Okay, and the reason the United States is doing it is because obviously these are this really strong sector for the United States. Um, uh, the United States is very concerned about digital protectionism in other countries, and we're going to talk about the specifics of that in a few minutes. And then we also wanted to have a very strong exception for national security, and in TPP, 
the exception, which means that you can ignore the rules or violate the rules as long as you have a national security reason to do so. And so that's an interesting thing. Now, all trade agreements have a national security exception, but it was enhanced significantly in TPP, which is just, you know, something to think about in terms of when you're thinking about digital trade. All right. Let me interrupt yeah, you. yeah, yeah. When you say it was enhanced significantly, what do you mean by the national security exception so, was enhanced? So, so I don't want to spend, we could talk about this at lunch, but the language is much more specific as to um, what countries can do in terms of the national security exception. And it's a little bit odd, this is just my opinion, not quite relevant to this presentation, uh, because we had the source code language within this chapter of the agreement, um, but we didn't include malware. And so what is malware? It's just malicious information flows. So that's something we could talk about a little bit later. So just to clarify, I want to now sort of blend the human rights and responsibilities of states and what trade agreements require, and at least TPP would require states to do regarding information flows. So under the UN, it says that, uh, excuse me, I misspoke, under international human rights law, states are not supposed to block access to the internet, right, in such a way that people can't express themselves, right? So you're not supposed to censor people, okay? States must provide an appropriate regulatory framework for the internet to function, including civil liberties and the rule of law. Okay, did you hear about China's plans to uh, label every person in business? Okay, well, if China were a member of TPP, it couldn't do so under the internet rules there because that framework doesn't protect civil liberties. And that's the kind of thing this is why I'm saying to you this could have a huge effect in promoting an open internet if it were to happen, and that's why I support it. Moreover, there is no human right for states, okay? They do not have the responsibility to maintain information control, which we'll call information sovereignty, because that's the term the Russians use and the Chinese use, okay, in order to maintain security for their citizens, okay? And that has huge implications for information flows. The exceptions. So we're going to talk about this okay. yeah, uh, in a second. Because just to frame what you're saying, right now we have this crazy world, and David will kind of laugh at this, where I think unions and a lot of civil society groups say trade isn't good enough. The current system of rules sucks. It isn't good enough. And where I think that will lead us to is, okay, we're going to have trade agreements that don't have labor rights chapters or transparency chapters or environmental chapters in addition. We'll just use exceptions. And that means governments can get away with anything. And I find that deeply troubling. In other words, you can say, I'm going to, every person who's blue-eyed we're going to put in, we're not going to let them use the internet for national security reasons because blue-eyed people are generally terrorists. 
Okay, and they could say, that's, we think it's necessary to our national security. And, you know, another country could dispute it, and that country would have to accept the dispute and defend itself. But it's very unlikely, because there's never been such a dispute. But I worry about that. That is possibly the future of trade agreements. <laughs> so. I share that worry. I, I was curious how that, your statement saying under TPP, there would be no right to information sovereignty. How, well, how no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that these are what the human rights are. So we're going to get into TPP specifically. Because okay, okay, we need to be, no, this is great. It's exactly what I want. I appreciate yeah. it, Rob. Um, so what does TPP say? The thing is, like other trade agreements, and I think trade agreements are going to have to catch up, right? They, talk, they, they address governments and they address market actors, except market actors are firms, and they are at times consumers, but they're not human beings. <laughs> and I think this is kind of a problem when we're talking about information flows. But here's what it says. It addresses the, so you have to go first to the service chapter to look at who's covered. Because the service chapter is the umbrella for the digital services, which is e-commerce chapter. And so it defines who's delivering the services and who's receiving the services. So who's covered? So an investment is covered, an investor or a service supplier. And that's important because it's unclear if it covers all users who may not be purchasing a service when they deal with cross-border information flows, okay? Someone else might be purchasing that service. So when I'm looking up directions at Google and I'm lost in Rio de Janeiro, um, and I go to my smartwatch and I look up, how do I get back to my hotel? There's an ad on the side. I, I probably won't even look at it. That person's paying for the service. But am I here? It's unclear. I've heard both ways, but it's never specified. And I think it's going to have to be specified in the future. OK, what else does it say? Well, <laughs> about digital rights, it doesn't say much. OK, it states that in another chapter, TPP says that any regulation, including internet regulation, must be developed and applied in a transparent and accountable manner. And it must allow individuals and firms to challenge such policies. So that's political participation language that's in a, trans a separate chapter and due process language, okay? It's not in the e-commerce chapter, but it applies to the agreement as a whole. So it governs TPP, okay? But in terms of human rights, it doesn't address it directly, whether or not people should be able to access the internet, whether they should have rights to free expression, et cetera, because trade agreements don't do that. But I think they're going to move in that direction. OK, so what does TPP say? It has non-discriminatory principles, which could give states the ability to challenge when governments censor or filter information flows because they distort trade. They can be discriminatory. So that's thing one. OK, but any government could say, too bad, I'm, I'm doing it under an exception. OK, and that's worrisome. There has never been a challenge trade dispute towards a national security exception. 
Okay. But TPP covers right now 25% of all internet users, and that's a huge chunk of internet users, and hence, if it went into effect, I think it would affect all countries because all countries trade with the big kahunas like Japan, the United States, Canada, etc. Okay? But TPP is not well liked, and I don't know. Its future looks quite questionable. Now you said TPP also doesn't allow you to discriminate against products that are made in conditions that violate human rights. So that seems to sort of go against some of the other things you're saying. Well, okay, in terms of, but that's called like product, right? And digital right. services are a different thing. So a product would truly be a digital product. It's something that is tangible in the sense that, you know, there's something that is created that's not just a service that you're delivering to another person. Okay? So um, the movie is the product, but I, it doesn't say anything about like services. So, and again, most of what we're talking about here is, is really information flows, which are neither a good nor service. They're something in between. Yeah? Uh, a digital product that was produced under what we would consider bad labor laws, uh, unethical labor laws, uh, we would then not be able to discriminate against such a digital product. That's right. Okay. Uh, That's right. So. I mean, you could still produce it. Let me, let me just give an example of this. Burma has long been a member of the GATT WTO, okay? And the United States banned certain goods from Burma, but Burma never challenged that. Um, and the United States did so because Burma notoriously, was notoriously corrupt and uh, was quite abusive of people producing many of the things that it exported in the, you know, black market and in the, if you will, the real market. Um, so countries are very reluctant to challenge each other on these kind of things, but maybe that'll change over time. Let me caveat that. Yeah. You could exercise, there's a public morality exception, so you could um, oh, that's right. ban that right, uh, film or whatever under the public morality exception. Whether or not that would pass muster legally would be open to whether or not, as Susan pointed out, that other country chose to challenge it on behalf of its producer. But there is an exception for public morality as well. A moral issue. Well, we he's have defining, labor you, might, you might view it as a moral well, issue. Okay, we, yeah. yeah. But uh, we, we have labor laws which define hours people can work uh, and so on and so forth, which would, not be a, which would not be a moral issue. I'm not worried about porn pornography morally or something off-color and such. That's not the issue. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at specific fair labor laws. Right. That and would I think what Mark's saying to you is you, you simply use the morality um, explanation mm -hmm. to ban that good. So the United States could say, we're banning goods from, Bur from Burma because it offends our morals. So that would be the way that you'd caveat it. That's what he's saying. All right. Ooh.
So, okay, moving right along, there's several other agreements that could have binding provisions on information flows. And they are TTIP, right, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, and then the Trade and Services Agreement, which is being negotiated at the WTO, but not by all the members of the WTO. Um, and um, so, you know, these, these negotiations, if TPP were to happen, they'd have to have binding provisions too. But we'll see. They're all big ifs, okay? And it's hard for governments to find common ground. And in particular, I think TTIP will be bedeviled by privacy questions, right? Because, but if we were to rephrase that, it's about the regulatory context. And Europe just has a very different regulatory context in terms of information flows than the United States does. We've patched together a solution, um, but I don't know if that solution is going to hold in EU courts. Um, and so we'll have to see. Okay, so now I want to move on from the trade agreement side. If, if um, I guess I've gone a little bit, I'll be going a little bit over, but j just to say about digital protectionism, because I don't think you can talk about one without talking about the other. And I'd be curious to know if you guys agree with me. I'm so sorry I have my back to you, which is very rude. But, um, you know, how can this be? The United States is so far ahead in terms of digital trade. I mean, you know, the only country that comes close is China. But the U.S., you know, in general is, is and I think this will change. China is going to catch up. It's great on digital platforms like uh, e-commerce platforms. But the United States is more and more calling other countries' regulatory environment protectionist. Okay, and I think that this is going to bite back in ways that the United States should be very worried about. First, because the Internet is evolving. It's evolving in ways that the United States may not have the comparative advantage. And hence, do we really want to be protectionist? Um, is that going to be the right strategy to go? So let's look at this. Okay, so this is the Internet evolution. And all I want to say here is that the, where I think the Internet is evolving, here I am at Berkman saying where the Internet is evolving, that's kind of ironic. But I think apps and AI are the, not the Internet of Things, is really where the action is going to be. And the United States, frankly, is not as good at China in terms of um, turning products. I mean, Amazon's done great with Echo, but you know, I would say China's now leading in terms of product applications using AI. And then the other thing is apps, which are more and more used by people because they save them time. Um, and so our lead could be declining, especially as population, the internet population moves away from Western countries more towards Eastern countries. All right, so what's happening with US protectionism? Well. Every year, the United States puts out a report on protectionism called the National Trade Estimate. And what that is is businesses come in and say, um, here's where we're finding barriers to trade. So I just want to give you really quickly a couple of examples. So national security procurement. So Canada basically says, um, you can't bid on our government email platform, okay? But the United States does the same thing for certain email platforms, okay? The Army says, 
it wants to have its own platform, and it's not going to allow a, a cloud provider from another country to provide that. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's GPA? Government Procurement Agreement, which ah. is a trade agreement um, that um, basically everybody who signs that basically says, we're going to treat you as a local producer if you sign it. There are certain exceptions to it. Okay. Um, privacy. Again, just to do this really quickly, the United States condemns countries that don't do enough on privacy. <laughs> And then it condemns countries for having too much privacy as a barrier to trade. Okay, well, are we the gods that decide what is an appropriate level of privacy? That's going to differ in all countries. I mean, just look at your children or your friends. You know, children have very different concepts of privacy than their parents. Online privacy. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, what is the appropriate regulatory environment for the Internet? In 1997, during the Clinton administration, the Department of Commerce came out with this report which defined the environment. And I would say, if that is what it's supposed to be, the United States doesn't stick to that. And that's okay, I guess. But what we said was, we want to make sure that differences in national regulation, whether it's privacy, whether who can provide the government services, whether it's this is national security regulation, they shouldn't be trade barriers. We got to figure out a way to reconcile this. But we don't. We condemn other countries, um, for example, how they treat ISP liability provisions. I don't want to go too far into this, but this has become a huge issue for, for example, EFF or public knowledge. And this is why they, they, don't, they don't think the United States does enough to help other countries have fair use type provisions. But other countries have very different views about what is appropriate, what is the appropriate strategy for taking down sites, or whether or not ISP should have that function at all. And I'm not sure we should be telling other countries how to do it. All right, this is where I'm really getting worried. So I would say demands for digital protection is I'd like to write a history of this someday, but I don't have anybody to pay me to do it. And I think it really starts when Google says, China is censoring the internet, filtering, we're having you know, trade distorting effects, and we just can't operate there. And that's when they issued this paper, and I think David Weller wrote it. It was a really interesting paper. I use it all the time. I guess it's out of date, but that was the first time that I saw a firm really allege digital protectionism. And that's the link to human rights, because these governments are censoring their own citizens and producers and restricting access to the internet. Okay? But in another example, so every year now, the ITC labels countries, it names and shames them, that it thinks are have too many barriers to digital trade. So in 2014, it was now Nigeria, Algeria, and China. Okay, And they were very specific about China in 2015. So for example, they said they have protectionist strategies, uh, including an opaque internet regulatory regime. Right? If you don't know how you, the rules that apply, if the government's not transparent about it, that can be a barrier to trade. And they're right to cite China's. 
Okay, another example is this U.S. Steel case, which I'm very, very worried about. So what happened is U.S. Steel, right, long, excellent at getting protection, excellent at asking for protection. And basically they said that in, as part of a larger case against Chinese steel producers, they said a particular Chinese steel company, the government had gone in, stolen U.S. Steel's um, intellectual property online for a high-tech, much more flexible steel, Bao Steel came, got that from the Chinese government, and then Bao Steel uh, has been using it, dumping steel. Well, wait a minute. So that means the U.S. government has to determine, it has to attribute it, it has to figure out the remedy, um, how harmful it is to firms, how do you compensate firms, what agency should decide this? I can tell you that the U.S. government has not got its act together on this. They don't know how to do this, and it's not a public discussion. And they should be thinking about it because things like censorship, as you know, can affect the stability of the Internet. Okay, so the only other thing that I wanted to bring up is can you use the exceptions to prevent censorship? And maybe we'll just leave it for... Uh, questions, but I have some recommendations for the U.S. government, and I think the best way to determine this is to do it at the WTO to have a case. And let's figure out what is a barrier to trade in terms of information flows, okay? And let's have a censorship filtering data localization trade case. But it needs to be done at the WTO at the multilateral level to be credible. Okay, that's my shtick. <laughs> so I welcome your thoughts. Words about what your your principal beef is? I'm I'm not sure I totally get it. So, so I have many beefs. <laughs> but, okay. But first, my first beef on, on is that U.S. policy towards the internet is incoherent. Right. And that's what I wrote in the the brief for the Global Commission. In that. We're doing all these things in terms of trade to, to help U.S. companies. And we say we're doing it to have an open Internet. And I think we genuinely want to have an open Internet. But we're not credible in saying that for many reasons. First, because we don't have any staff people who are out there looking at the implications of our policies on the Internet. And because we, through the five eyes, but particularly through NSA, are out there scouring the internet for information. And we are also the country that is most adamant about taking down sites in terms of potential censorship. And so we look kind of hypocritical, although I, I understand that we need to have some sort of strategy to deal with intellectual property online. So I'm saying we, we haven't figured out how to reconcile our ideals for an open Internet and for protecting digital rights with our trade policies, which are the main means right now for regulating global information flows. And I don't see people asking the questions to try to link what's being done at the Department of State with what's being done <laughs> at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. And I don't think that will redound well for our comparative advantage in the Internet sector. If we become really nutty protectionists, 
I think that'll have huge bad implications for trust online and for the internet as a whole. expand a little bit on one of the points you made very early on which was calling like calling Google a US company how the the multinational role or factor of country, country uh, companies affects their relationship to these trade deals yeah I think this is where the rug what's the expression that something meets the road rubber, rubber meets the road yeah I think investor state brings it to the fore. And there's a guy at, at Cato who I really have a lot of respect for, Simon Lester. And Simon Lester, he says he does not understand why the United States is so adamant about including investor state provisions in trade agreements, which allow companies to sue states for regulations that, that they see as regulatory takings, okay? Why are we doing this for companies that are footloose? This is basic thesis, okay? Why do companies get that right? Okay, because until we had investor state and trade agreements, and this starts 1993, we only had state-to-state -state dispute settlement. And what state-to-state -state dispute settlement does is it allows you only, and we should ask Mark's opinion on this, but it basically says we're not going to have flimsy trade disputes. We're only going to have trade disputes about really big issues. Whereas when you have state and uh, firm to state disputes, you're going to have tons of little disputes. And maybe that's not such a good thing. There are other problems with investor states. But why are we giving firms so much power when they're footloose? And when that had principally been reserved to the power of states, take away Mark. No, what do you this think? Is your show, so I don't mind. Well, well I, but uh, Mark served at USTR, and I think it would be interesting to hear his. Well, I think uh, you can obviously do an investment agreement as a standalone agreement between two countries. I think the reason they've been brought into trade agreements is oftentimes there's a belief that um, you need these other components in order for the two sides to make a deal. That's how it got brought in. Um, the public wasn't focused on this, I would say, until very recently, and particularly in Europe. I think they weren't focused on it when they were trade deals with smaller countries where there was a sense of an asymmetry. Oh, of course, our courts are reliable, but not necessarily yours. Therefore, this is largely to our advantage. But now that the U.S. and Japan, you and Japan, U.S. and Europe are doing these deals with each other, and particularly some of the cases involving public interest such as the Australia challenge uh, about Australia, tobacco labeling, environmental challenges in Canada and so forth, they've really elevated this to the public floor. So I think there's a real public debate going on about whether these should be included or not. If so, how do you address some of these imbalances? But that's some of the historic context for why we saw the trend move this way and now why we're seeing the context put it push back the other way. See, I, I mean, I think, I think CETA would sail through, and TTIP would sail through if you got investor state out of it. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's Canada EU. Okay. Um, it would sail through. Well, actually, today they. Yeah. So, um, but I'm saying that the EU Parliament would be much more accepting, and in particular Germans, who have taken to the streets over investor state because of a particular case related to nuclear power. 
Um, but, um, you know, I, so just to summarize this, so, you know, what should, how should we negotiate trade agreements? The notion is that we need business to be supportive of these agreements, and so you can't get rid of investor state. But that is the key provision in TPP, and I would say in CETA and in TTIP, that is alienating large swaths of the population. Obviously, many people don't like other aspects, but that issue that state that firms can sue states is very worrisome. Now, we need to acknowledge the fact that the United States, in their models for these chapters, there's language that carves out regulatory. It says that states need policy space so that their regulations are protected. But no one seems to believe that um, because of history. There's been too many challenges to state regulations well, by firms. States wasn't way back when you know they had a big riot in Seattle about the WTO. It seems like that was one of the principal issues. No, because it wasn't in trade wasn't. agreements. I, believe me, I was there. Okay. <laughs> in 1999. No, they just believe that the WTO empowers multinational yeah. corporations at the expense of of workers and consumers, and that was essentially the argument. Having investor state didn't exist in the makes trade that agreement. problem worse. Well, yeah. yes, it, 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 but, you know, the United States, I think U.S. policymakers have made a decision that they can't leave it out yeah. because they'll alienate the business community even more. And it's the business community that's going to lobby for TPP, and it's the Republicans that will give it the votes to make it, if it ever comes to a vote. Yeah. Much. Uh, I have a question about how you define these these uh, these flows, these data flows, because that really comes to the core of the question for me. Uh, you had this example of um, being in, in in Brazil, and you know you're using your Google Maps, and there's no money changing hands there. At least you're not paying for it. Right. You know, there's the advertisers and there's Google who are uh, exchanging money there, and in a sense, you know, you are the product in those exchanges. <laughs> that's that's one way of framing it, right? And so, you know, when you pose the question that way, are are you involved there? Um, to put it in European terms, you might say, are data subjects included, you know, um, in this idea of, of these data flows? Um, and this is why, you know, I worked um, in Brussels for a while at European Digital Rights, uh, or EDRI. Um, Mary Ant. That's right, yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't on the, uh, the TTIP portfolio, so I wasn't following this closely, but you know, one of the things you heard was, you know, they, they say that privacy is excluded and Europe, Europe still has its right to regulate, you know, data protection. On the other hand, these data flows uh, are in, in the treaty, right? And if you take the European view that, you know, personal data is about privacy and regulating privacy means regulating personal data, if you then say that personal data are, are part of these flows, which must be free, then, you know, that, that's basically contradictory. Yep. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I know where you fuse on that. Yeah, I think it is a great dilemma, and I've heard very, Mariant and I are going to testify in a couple of weeks at the EU Parliament on just that. Um, my gut is, you know, I, I think there's no way to do it without having some sort of recognition of privacy. And so I think the easy way out is to say, make it stronger and clearer in the exceptions. Um, 
in, instead of spelling it out, right, by saying, here's the rules by which we will respect privacy, because the United States and the EU are not going to find common ground on that, only because you guys, you guys in the Philippines have a right that doesn't exist in the United States or in the real world, the right to be delinked, the right to be forgotten. Um, it, we're just not going to find common ground on that, I think. So uh, the only way to do it is through the exceptions. And I think this is, this is why, where trade agreements are going to go. But that's a bad thing, I think, too. David? Answer my question, but um, is there a bilateral deal or a national government that's got it right? I mean, is there a model, even a partial model, of how to do this out there somewhere in a particular country that Denmark or Sweden? Or mm. I was thinking Sweden, but it, but Sweden doesn't have its own trade policy. Um, but I mean, more generally, in terms of how they define internet rights mm. and no, no one's. I mean, the United States is is at least moving in the right direction. But I don't see it in Canada. I don't see it in the EU. We just need to think more clearly about it. Um, I guess the question that I would ask, right, is um, on the one hand, I hear you, Susan, being quite realist about it, saying whether we like it or not, this stuff is going to be included in trade agreements. Mm -hmm. and it's almost politically necessary, given the political economy of who's involved in export industries, that it be included in trade agreements. Um, so given that that's the case, right, would you really, really prefer a world where this stuff is not included in trade agreements? Or yeah, would I, you prefer that uh, it be included but be done differently inside trade agreements? What I want first is the United States to develop some sort of infrastructure to think about. There should be like a committee to defend the internet where you have sort of an man person, Amsbuds person, who says, let's weigh the implication of various policy decisions on the internet as a whole. Someone should be safeguarding the internet. I'm not saying it's a commons, but I think we should start off with that premise. Then I think we need to figure out a way that we can encourage innovation online, but set a regulatory context text that builds trust and is flexible to accommodate different regulatory environments. So that leads me to say trade could be good because of these non-discriminatory rules. But it also, from the human rights hat that I wear, it really worries me because having worked on trade and human rights for years, while I see it getting better and better over time, I don't want human rights to be regulated through trade agreements. So thank you for bringing out that essential hypocrisy in my own analytical thinking. <laughs> but here's the thing. What I think about is, you know, I don't know if you guys ever go to, you know, the uh, IGF Global, but, you know, when thinking about these things, um, or Net Mundial, you know, and at those kind of events, People are very, very, you know, it's almost like they have this um, image of the internet as if it's this wild and free, you know, thing, and we can keep it that way. And that's too romantic for me, because the truth is, where the population is, is in countries where the internet is very, very restricted. And 
Yet, those countries have innovation flourishing. At least some of them do. Russia, I mean, if you look at um, cyber um, security stuff, um, app development, and then, of course, China. Now, are those outliers? Other repressive states don't have innovative industries. But given that that's happening, where you have this weird context where you have a lot of innovation and yet you have repression of, I feel like it's incumbent on us to, the trade regime offers you this opportunity. But is, is the price of that, you know, what is the price of that? I need, I need to think more clearly about it because it does offer you that free flow as the default. And that is so important. If TPP happens, China's going to want to join it. It can't right now because it just doesn't have the regulatory capacity. But at some point, it's going to want to join it. And then it's going to have to play by those rules. And that gives you the opportunity to challenge it in a trade dispute. But maybe do it at the WTO, which, where China is a member, even though it says nothing right now about the internet. There's no clear rules. Um, there have been trade cases related to the internet. And it offers an opportunity to like test these things. And I would like the United States to start testing. Now, there's evidence that the United States, these trade estimate reports, the naming and shaming, is a way to publicly accumulate evidence to do a trade dispute. But yet, the United States hasn't done it since Google first complained in 2010. I don't think the, the United States would choose a big kahuna like China. It would choose a much smaller economy to challenge. Like an example could be Egypt. Remember when Egypt censored the internet? And it does off and on. You couldn't do it with a country like Iran because it's not a member of the WTO. Uh, the boundaries. We've been talking a lot about the international law sphere and trade deals. What about below that in the norm sphere? What can be done there to do more in these areas? Or is that kind of just a feel-good thing that companies and well, two, two things. So um, after Seattle, now I'm showing my age, but after Seattle, I did a lot of work on corporate social responsibility. And um, I guess I am um, not a fan of corporate social responsibility. I, I think it's, I think it teaches people to ask companies for pu public goods or quasi-public goods instead of learning to influence government. And good governance only occurs when there's that feedback loop, where there's this give and take between the government and the governed. And so while it can be helpful in providing some public goods some of the time, um, it's, um, it's very irregular, right? Because as the company loses money, it will pull back from providing AIDS drugs or whatever, or roads or education for scholarships for the children of its employees. So I wouldn't count on that. And I, I, it's nice to see soft law, hard law combinations, but I don't think the track record is. And then I look at, you know, I have enormous respect for Rebecca McKinnon. You know, if you look at the index, does it look so sunny to you, what firms are doing? 
I mean, I, I just, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I like, I ha it reminds me of when I was a kid. I used to look at department stores, like Saks was different from, you know, um, Macy's. And like, is Google, Facebook, I, I know they're in different sectors and, you know, is one better than the other? One has a mission statement that says, do no evil, but I really don't know the interior workings. Is one really nicer and more humane than the other? I'd like to think so, but I, I really don't know. So where are these norms? You know, I mean, Yahoo got its hand, you know, Congress slapped Yahoo. They were publicly shamed. Is Yahoo a good company now? I don't know. About, um, so we kind of talked about, so in Europe, for example, the, the idea of, you know, how maybe good faith regulation, which isn't intended to, to have, you know, protectionist effects could end up having them anyway, right? It's not the main aim of, of these regulations. Yeah. But so what would a bad faith, you know, uh, regulation Well, it's look pretty like? clear, right? If, if, if I'm the yeah. EU and I really want to, like, you know, you know, support my own digital economy and keep you out, well, local what would content, the worst kind of... Local content, local server requirements, I mean, those are pretty obvious. Data localization. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. But I, I, I don't, you know, privacy to me, like, that's, I, I understand how it could add costs. Uh, but it it doesn't seem like that's really an explicit trade barrier. It's it could be used in that way. I mean, I've seen studies that show that the right to be forgotten has really empowered the big platforms because little firms they can't do these kind of things. So a DuckDuckGo is not going to have staff to like take down sites the way that a Google would. And so is that really the, what you want in Europe? But I don't think U.S. regulatory policy is any better. Yeah. I mean, you know, that question about who has it right, does anyone, do you all, can you name a government that has the Internet right? Maybe Estonia? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and like a relatively homogeneous yeah. population. I've heard good things about Chile too, but I couldn't document it to you. But it, with that, then, if if we're saying um, uh, Estonia hypothetically has it right, how the I the the following question is, and or even even if we did it like a Sweden or or an, a slightly bigger country, how do we scale that for? Not just the U.S. Well, I think we ignored the other side of this. The the the. Um, I, I think a lot about. I've never been funded for my work on this, but um, trust online and um, malicious information flows. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any government is handling that well. And as someone who has done a lot of research on good governance and transparency, that's one of the things I teach. Um, <laughs> Um, I am totally amazed that we let this happen, that we have this market for malware that is totally opaque and ungoverned, and that's okay. I, I just don't get it at all. And we're all threatened by it, and it's traded. And I'm not talking about, you know, Vassinar and, and you know, um, export controls. I'm talking about we've got to figure out ways to make the sale of malware transparent. Because I think it's, it's 
basically eroding trust in others. And trolls would be another example, and the internet. Now, that's not. Well, trolls aren't trade, though. Right, right. They're not. But They're let me just. Could I? Well, no, but let's think about this. I mean, in terms of what the trolling that has occurred related to the Russian disinformation, I can't document this for you because I don't have, I, I haven't done research on it. I, I don't know enough about it, but it's my understanding from secondary sources that, you know, um, there's been a lot of disinformation that has been sent. That's another question that I think trade regimes will need to deal with. But is it propaganda? Um, is it really traded? I don't know. And I don't see any, I don't know. Do you know of any scholar working on that? Um, not specific to trade and trolls. Yeah. That's the interesting Do you part. agree with that, though? You know, thinking about it, that, that it is an international issue now? Is it a trade issue? Most people would say no. Trying, trying to suppress malware with a trade agreement seems to me like trying to suppress uh, heroin trafficking with a trade agreement. It's sort of like the the wrong tool for for the job. But. but if trade agreements govern information flows and they govern uh, source code, yeah. they govern malware, right? It's not. It's implicit. It's not explicit. It's never been clarified. But I, logic would tell you that it is there, and hence it must. There are things that you can do to make it more opaque. Excuse me, less opaque. Because transparency is a key norm of all trade regimes, transparency of regulation. And yet you have this essential black market. Um, but, you know, that's a very different issue that I hope somebody will work on. Problem of malware. No, no, not at all. <laughs> if that's what you're saying. No, and, and if you made the market uh, more open, you know, maybe there would be less higher bounties and there would be less incentives for malware. I think the opacity makes it more attractive in some respects. Nobody knows what anyone else is doing, so we really don't know what the pricing should be. And it might reduce demand for it. <laughs> I don't think I've convinced you all. Well, it was really nice to well, talk with you. One last thing. Oh. Well, yeah, I, I, I feel like at least four or five different ways we've the discussion has reinforced your argument that the WTO is the place to do this. It's our best uh, effort because it's got enforcement power that substantial framework has. It's got the rules that we want. Um, and trade agreements, even at getting at norms, one way of getting at norms is to do it through regional trade agreements. So if you have two or three regions, even if it's two small ones and one larger one, and they agree on something, and it, it's more or less similar clauses in those agreements, that begins to kind of set a, a it doesn't create law per se at the international level, but Regional agreements will, you know, help create norms in that direction. Um, so I don't know. I'm 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 coming back to the Obama argument, which is, you know, we need to get something like the TPP done, because that gives us some leverage to help set the rules of the future, rather than sitting back and letting them either be no rules or set by somebody else.
Yeah, I agree with that. Political mind twisting about going back to all the negotiating partners and having some kind of a renegotiation that they might not agree to um, about some significant points before you can bring it back to the U.S. Yeah, but I, I think you know the Clinton campaign. I mean, they have to be very negative about TPP, but I think there will be a TPP kind of limited TPP and. I think it'll move forward. It'll right just now, be a place where it has to be rejected or accepted in toto. So if you if it can't be amended at this point, right? It can't it can't really be amended. But yeah, but no. I if 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 let's say Canada, it seems to be moving ahead in Canada. Prime Minister Trudeau said, and I think if if Canada or Australia or Japan moved it ahead, there would be more incentives. And I I think there's ways to just. I mean, it's never happened before that I can think of, but I think Secretary Clinton, she's, they will have to figure out a way to do it. To amend it? Not to amend it, to repackage it, maybe. <laughs> if it can't be amended and it's yeah. not acceptable in its current form, then it And it can like only you, be voted up or down. Then yes, it seems right. like you have to start over. Yeah, well, I think we'll be we'll be seeing Judge Ju Chief Justice Merrick Garland before not Chief Justice, but right, Justice yeah. Merrick Garland before we see TPP, pending the outcome of the election. But I don't know. of the issue in the United States. <laughs> yeah, but they're making all sorts of noise now, which is very interesting to pressure the United States. You know, and I think you know some people in Congress will. Some Republicans in Congress hear that, but whether or not they're willing to use, I mean, I'm not saying the lame duck. I think it happens if she becomes president and, and um, you know, has to do something. But I think if it's President Trump, we all might as well. You know, I mean, I'm moving. <laughs> influence our legislators. So. Yeah. Any other last questions? Well, so I hope this brings to bear, right, some of what messages that I've been working on, saying there's a lot of very complex questions surrounding the TPP, not just on some of these larger issues, but specific to the internet community. Yeah. Um, where you're dealing with an agreement that is imperfect, but are you better off in a world with this or without it, right? And so, Susan, thank you for provoking us yeah. uh, on that to think further and deeper about this question. Well, thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And